Let us pray. <clears throat> Come, Holy Spirit, and be our guest, and let my words be your words, all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let me just say that I have not risen in the world in any sense, but two people complained they couldn't hear me last time, so I'm using the microphone. Using the microphone. Speak up, Bruce. <clears throat> this is the fourth Sunday of Lent, placing us halfway through the season of Lent. And as you can see, we all have lovely <laughs> rose-colored chasubles and stoles. And there have been a lot of comments about that already today. I'm sure that'll continue. But what this does is signify a slight relaxation of the penitential season of Lent. A lightening of color, perhaps. See it as you wish. The other place we do it is halfway through Advent. So you'll look for it again then. But more important than the color of the vestments, we are now one step closer to that incredibly moving series of historical events that are the basis for our faith. The crucifixion, the death, and the subsequent resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we should have been pondering our salvation. That also incredible and elusive, at least for non-believers, state of grace that is strictly a result of the work of Christ on the cross. As one of my seminary professors writes in his commentary on John's Gospel, he, meaning our God, is the God of the impossible, as the salvation of each of us testifies. And perhaps even more strongly, my favorite John Stott notes in his commentary on Romans 3, the wonder is not that some are saved and others not, but that anyone is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. But, praise be to God, Jesus atoned for all sin for all time when he shed his blood and died on the cross. Again, you've heard me say this before, I will say it again because we need to hear it repeatedly. Atonement for a Christian means the reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus Christ. Recall that many, many folks call this atonement the crucial doctrine of Christianity. And for those of us who acknowledge that sin exists and that we may even be sinners ourselves, though of course that doesn't apply to any of us, this is indeed the good news. Today's Old Testament lesson and the Gospel as well paint rather vivid pictures of the incredible power of God, both for the Israelites and for those that were following Jesus during his ministry in Galilee. It is that everyday but essential substance bread, bread, that ties together these two readings. Let us look at these two passages, consider connections, and then after that, try to see just how these passages are really lead-ins 
to one of the most compelling sections in all of Scripture. We'll see that later in, in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. So in the Exodus passage, Moses the prophet and his older brother Aaron the priest are really pretty much up against it. Recall that they, with the miraculous help of God, had recently been heroes, having led the people out of slavery in Egypt through the Red or Reed Sea. But now, the people are grousing to Moses and Aaron about shortage of food, and actually seem to be yearning for a return to Egypt, where at least as they recalled that bondage, their stomachs were full. The Lord answers the grumbling with bread, saying, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out, gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Note that here, God is providing bread, manna, but he's also testing his chosen people. There are indeed conditions to this heavenly gift. God only provides enough manna each day for that particular day. You should hear the reflection of the prayer that Jesus taught us. Give us this day our daily bread. When we pray, we are not to ask for food for the rest of our lives, but we're to ask for just enough for our needs of a particular day. God would have us diligent and prudent in providing food that is convenient for ourselves and our household, but he would have us dependent on him and have us communicate with him every day, at least. Thus, we are not to hoard or accumulate this gift from God. God tests the people to see whether or not they trust him by requiring of them that they not worry that they do not have the next day's rations. Now, we should note that this may not have been Pepperidge Farm <laughs> that God provided. In fact, manna, which you've read, is described as flakes, white like coriander seed, over an extended period of time, could hardly be called appetizing. It is suggested that it may have tasted like honey to young folks and oil to older folks. But as that long-deceased but highly respected commentator, who's become one of my friends, Matthew Henry, points out in his commentary, Never was there such a market of provisions as this, where so many hundred thousand men were daily furnished without money and without price. So now, store this story of God's provision of bread away as we look at today's gospel. It is noteworthy to be sure that this particular story involving our Lord is the only story that is in all the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also in John. And so we must deduce from that that the Gospel writers putting the Word of God to parchment believe this to be very important to the understanding of Jesus and his activities as God-man.
the gospel you have in your bulletin if you want to follow on your copy. To review, Jesus by now had a significant size audience following him. By his divinity, he had performed many miracles, and, it de and indeed, at least some folks were beginning to believe that he was who he said he was. Remember, during Epiphany, we talked about Jesus God being manifest. Think back to that. In this setting, we're told that there were 5,000 men, and we can presume some women and children as well, who had assembled to listen to Jesus. And he's concerned that these folks may not have enough to eat. As is often the case, he seizes upon a situation to test and to teach. Here, clearly, there is insufficient food for this huge group. But Jesus tests, asking Philip, what should we do about this situation? Our Lord seems to be acting much as God the Father did with the Israelites, testing to see if they do indeed trust him in their lives. Philip is of little help. But Andrew notes that there's a young lad in the crowd with what sounds like a paltry amount of food, five small barley loaves and two pickled fish. Visualize sardines, if you will, from a can because we're told these fish were extremely common in the sea, caught easily, they were in schools, and were pickled, because, of course, there was no refrigeration, only salt. Andrew seems nonplussed by all this, but seems expectant, perhaps, as he looks to the Lord to solve the problem. This reminds me very much of the wedding feast at Cana that we talked about a month ago or so during Epiphany, where Jesus' mother acts expectantly, saying to the disciples, do what he tells you. Clearly, Mary was aware, at least in her heart, of what was to come, as far as her son was concerned. And here, I think that Andrew feels somewhat the same way. Jesus immediately took control of the situation, and after giving thanks, passes out the bread, and the fish himself. And here's the miracle. Every time he reached for it, there was more bread to pass out. This to me is certainly reminiscent of the manna in the wilderness where over 40 long years, and please dig on the book of Numbers, I'd love to talk to you about that book sometime, there appeared to be an unending supply of bread. As we review this, we see that Andrew brought the lad with the loaves to Jesus. And look what happened. We should see a lesson here. Whenever we bring someone to Jesus, there's always the possibility of a miracle of one kind or another. There's an old story that kind of rings true here about a German schoolmaster who, when he arrived in front of his desk each day before commencing his class, he would bow to the pupils respectfully. When one inquired of the master why he did this, he answered that one never knows just what might come of the people assembled in front of him. He was anticipating a miracle, I think. And indeed, one of his pupils was Martin Luther. Well, what of the miracles here? 
does it not reveal the very essence of Jesus as the Son of God? And does it not show us the abundant and even extravagant generosity of our God? The lesson must be that if we bring our meager gifts to God, one never knows what God will do with them. We should be expectant always when we bring meager gifts as well as when we pray. These two stories, the provision of 40 years of daily bread to the Israelites and the feeding of the 5,000 by our Lord, are most revealing then of how our God provides for us. But we must again place them in context because as I've stated many times before in Scripture, context is king. Jesus references the manna story commenting twice in John chapter 6 verses 49 and 58 that the forefathers ate the manna in the desert and yet they died. This is the antecedent thinking that leads Jesus to say that the good bread that never spoils and that has the most amazing property is Jesus himself. He himself is the real bread of life. Indeed, verse 33, in verse 33, he identifies himself as that bread, saying, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This entire concept is something new and different and incredible. And we see that the Jews who heard it had a very difficult time accepting it. But Jesus elaborates more, tells them to stop grumbling, remember the grumbling in Exodus, and to open their minds to this new reality. He tells them that no one can come to him unless God the Father draws him. In verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That ultimate statement, I will raise him up on the last day, really says it all to anyone who fears death. In a well-known book, Crucified God, it's rather intellectual, but it's a good book, by Jürgen Moltmann, the opening line is, the cross is not and cannot be loved. But then Moltmann continues with, yet only the crucified Christ can bring the freedom which changes the world because it is no longer afraid of death. How compelling is that? John goes on to say that this whole idea of Jesus being bread and that we must eat of his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life was something that even many of his disciples could not incorporate into their thinking at this time. Indeed, they could not even internalize this idea of crucifixion. The fact that the leader whom they'd been following was going to allow 
his own execution. It was just too much to take. In modern parlance, it did not compute. And we read in verse 66 that many disciples even deserted Jesus at this time. What about us? Can we accept this hard saying? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? That he is indeed God's only son at the, and that he came to earth with the purpose of showing that his death could lead to the conquering of all sin for all time. I pray that we all can accept this. It is a marvelous feeling when after we realize that there's nothing we can do by ourselves to rid ourselves of the thin sins that we have committed and continue to commit, but that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, does it all for us. Now, a newcomer hearing this story that God sent his son to earth to die for us might say, this is crazy. And at first blush, the uneducated might agree. But when one looks at the entire spread of human history, taking into consideration the cosmic fall, The Exodus event, humankind's continual resistance to God's ways and humankind's rebellious nature and propensity to sin, the incarnation of Jesus and his promises begin to make sense. We all want sin lifted off our backs. Sin is painful to us. We don't like the feeling of associated guilt we don't like the feeling that we have in our gut when we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We suffer when we have difficult interactions with fellow workers and with our kids and with our spouses. It hurts. This brokenness is part of being created in the image of God but with the added gift of free will. But Jesus offers the way out. We can indeed start over so long as we are serious about trying to follow him and his way. We can never be perfect. And we'll slide backwards sometimes even after seeming success. As my systematic theology professor said, we build up a good supply of grace as we become more and more sanctified through the reciprocal love that God and we have for each other. But our accumulated grace leaks out and we need more doses of the grace that God offers frequently. How do we obtain this? Easy answer. We pray unceasingly. And we set up the trajectory for our prayer, for effective prayer, by reading Holy Scripture every single day of our lives. Well, this may seem a long stretch from the two stories about bread, but we must love the way our Lord uses them to help us accept 
what he is offering us. So no loafing. You knew there'd be one, didn't you? <laughs> Seriously, there are some days left to get it together during this Lenten season. There's still time to repent of our sin, to start over and live the new life. The sacrament of our Lord's body and blood, of which we, will, we shall soon partake, offers us a weekly remembering of just what Jesus gives us with his body and blood. It is a repeated starting over, a dismissal of all that is past, and looking to a future more consonant with the teaching of this Lord of ours. Let me close with a snippet from a sermon of that 5th century pope, and you'll know I always say don't use snippet, but I'm using a snippet, Leo the Great. This season, therefore, let false be forgiven. Let bonds be loosed. Let offenses be wiped clean. Let plans for vengeance fall through. That through the divine and human grace of Christ, the holy festival of Easter may find us all happy and innocent. Amen.